0: Let me introduce to you our speaker for this morning. Uh, Sunday school is a good friend of mine. Reverend Mark Guo is a graduate of Greenville Theological Seminary. He is uh, continuing his studies presently at Puritan Reform Theological Study, uh, Seminary, working on a THM there. Uh, but more importantly, he's leaving in just a few weeks to return to his home country of Taiwan to assist in church planting efforts there. He's here with his wife, Jane, and their five children. Uh, Mark is a very competent and gifted preacher, uh, a godly husband, and I'm very excited to have him address us this morning. Mark, why don't you come up and uh, open up uh, for us the word. Well, thank you for the kind words of introduction, and uh, good morning. My name is Mark Kuo, and thank you so much for Praying for us and supporting us is indeed a great privilege for us to have Second Presbyterian Church as our mission partner. So this morning, my task is to talk about the biblical model of mission. Biblical model of mission. And my lesson this morning borrows heavily from a book titled Planting and Development of Missionary Churches. And it was written in year 1885, by Dr. John Livingston Nevius, who was an American Presbyterian missionary to China in the 19th century. So John Nevius, he was born in 1829, excuse me, and he received his theological training from Princeton Seminary at that time. And then in 1853, shortly after he married his wife, they were sent by American Presbyterian Church to China and they faithfully served in China for almost 40 years. And in Dr. Nivea's time in China, it is pretty common for missionaries in China to hire new believers as full-time preachers and evangelists, which is called the the old method of mission, old method of mission. And why did they do so? Why did they hire, employ New believers as evangelists and preachers. Well, they did so because they and their standing churches were very anxious to see fruit, especially to see local people preaching the gospel. But Dr. Nevius believed that this old method was harmful to the growth of the Christian life and the growth of the mission church. It is because that method pulled out new believers out of their original callings, where they would have been very influential to people around them. It's harmful also because such employment hindered voluntary service of Christians. Christians would easily think that, well, I won't serve unless I am paid. And the result was that mission churches would hardly grow and always depend upon foreign funds for their ministry. So, in response, Dr. Nevius proposed a so-called new method for mission, new method for mission, which he believed were based on biblical principles and examples. And thus, he believed that the new method would lead to healthy growth of churches that are characterized by three things, self-propagating, self-supporting, and self-governing. Let me briefly define for you these three characteristics of healthy mission churches. So, first, self propagating. That means that the church members take the responsibility to share the gospel with the lost from the very beginning, from the very beginning, rather than relying on paid evangelists. And second, self supporting. Self supporting. That means that the members of the church take the responsibility to support their church financially from the very beginning again, from the very beginning, rather than relying upon foreign funds. A third characteristic of healthy mission church is self-governing. That means from the beginning, the young mission church is oriented toward training and electing their own elders among their own people rather than remaining under the authority of missionaries. Dr. Nevius believed this kind of mission church best reflects the model of mission revealed in the scripture. So he was basically applying several biblical principles to mission work, particularly planting churches in the mission field. And we can say that his method was proven to be successful, not because he was so great, but because his method is God's method revealed in the Bible, and so God bless his own method when it's used faithfully. In the following, based on Dr. Nivea's book, I will present several biblical principles that when applied in the mission field and by God's sovereign grace, that will grow the mission churches towards self-propagating, self-supporting, and self-governing. And the goal this morning for you as a supporting church is so that you may know what to expect from the mission churches that you are supporting. And also, you may know how to better pray for the missionaries and their works that you are supporting. So the first principle I'd like to show you is that new converts should grow and witness in their original callings and relationships We are told in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 17 through 20, the apostle Paul is extorting new believers to stay in their callings and vocations, being content with what the Lord has measured for them. So here we read in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 17 through 24, let each one remain in the same calling in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can be made free, rather use it. For he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's free man. Likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. You were were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brethren, let each one remain with God in that state in which he was called. So simply speaking, when a man is called... Savingly by God to faith in Christ, he should stick to his original vocation to which he was called before his conversion. Now, of course, the Apostle Paul is not saying that a man should never change his vocation after he's saved. Uh, as he says in verse 21, that slaves, they can seek freedom if it's available for them. But his point is that when God calls a man to salvation through faith in Christ, ordinarily, not without exception, of course, but ordinarily, he should stay in the same vocation, being content and seeking to glorify God wherever he is and whatever he does. As a believer, although he does the same job as he did before conversion, yet he does so with a totally different motivation and purpose. he 's now motivated by his love for God in all that he does in his job with the purpose to glorify God through his normal day-to-day job and vocation. So coming in on 1 Corinthians 7, Dr. Nevius says this, Christianity should not disturb the social relations of its adherents but requires them to be content with their lot and to illustrate the gospel in the spheres of life in which they are called. Now, he's not saying that God cannot call some Christian men into ministry later in their life, nor is he saying that missionaries cannot raise funds to serve in the mission field. Well, he believed that God may and does call certain men into full-time gospel ministry, through the church, testing and proving their character and calling, just as God has called him and other missionaries to China. However, his point is simply this. For the majority of Christians, for the majority of Christians, God calls them to stay where they are, to glorify God wherever they are, rather than pulling them out into full-time ministry he is refuting a common misunderstanding in his time in China that Christians could only choose either religion or career. You could either choose one of the two. So some at that time would think, well, I'm, I'm, I'm tired of my job in the world, and therefore it's time for me to, to do religion. While others would think, well, I'm too busy with my job to have time for religion of Christianity. And as you can see, both views are unbiblical and harmful to the health of Christian life. The matter of truth is that, as Dr. Neville said, quote, a man may be a good Christian and a good farmer or artisan at the same time. Or in other words, that godliness is profitable in, for all things, end quote. Christians are called to honor the Lord in all his ordinary relations and vocations and all places. As we are told by Jesus in Matthew 5.16, that your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Likewise, we are also told by the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 5 and 6, in our various relationships, whether it's husband and wife, whether it's parents and children, masters and slaves, which also imply employers and employees, we ought to act in obedience and submission to the Lord, who is the Lord over all in all spheres of our life. Our godly life and witness for Christ should always be penetrating and manifested through our normal daily life, both privately and publicly. Even if a man is called later into a full time ministry, his original calling of vocation should also function to train and to test his character and gifts before he can even confirm his call into the full time gospel ministry. In other words, he cannot be diligent in the ministry unless he has already been diligent in his other vocations before entering into ministry. Dr. Nevius did pay some helpers at his time. He did pay some Christian helpers to help plant churches and train other leaders. And and these men were well-tested and qualified before they were hired as helpers. How do you pray for mission churches accordingly? Well, you should pray that new believers in the mission field would be content in their various and even challenging callings and relationships. You should pray that they would live their daily life not of the world, not like the world, by shining a light in the world. It's an exhortation for you, but even more so in the mission field. Pray that they would cultivate a biblical work ethics working diligently and honestly so that those around them will see their light and thus more willing to hear the gospel. A second principle in the mission theory is that evangelism is most effectively carried out by believers in their relations and places. So following the previous point, according to Dr. Nevius, the ordinary pattern for evangelism is that Christians will remain in their original callings where they evangelize their co-workers, their neighbors, and bring them to the church as well. He's not, of course, he's not totally opposed to paying some Christians to help with teaching or evangelism. And, but the point, again, is simply that evangelism is the job of all believers in the church rather than something that we outsource to, to, to pay helpers. And, and also, newcomers should not be paid as full-time gospel workers as well. So, commenting on Acts 11, Dr. Nevius wrote, The extension of the church must depend mainly on the godly lives and voluntary activities of its members. End quote. We see that in Acts chapter 8, how God used regular church members to spread the gospel and plan New churches. After Stephen was martyred, as we read in Acts 8, four, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And then in verse 4, we read, Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the gospel, preaching the word, and then in Acts 11, verses 19 through 21, we see an even fuller picture. Here we read in Acts eleven nineteen: Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word, and no one but the Jews only. But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene who when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, preaching the word, the Lord Jesus, and the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number believed and turned to the Lord. So we see that these disciples, these believers, mostly are lay people. They share the gospel with unbelievers wherever they went. And the Lord blessed their action with many new converts. These believers were living in a time of severe persecution and they did not have anything like a mission board or sending agency like we do have today. No, but wherever God's providence led them, these believers were motivated to share the gospel with people around them. They were not paid at all. They were not paid to share the gospel, but rather they were motivated to by their love for the Lord and their love for the lost. So Dr. Nevis said, quote, the members of the early church were witness bearers, end quote. Evangelism should largely be done by regular church members in their callings. What they believe is best demonstrated through the way they live their daily life. In the mission field, the missionary, I believe, other than preaching and teaching the word faithfully, they should also be training church members to share the gospel with others in their homes, neighborhoods, and their works. How do you pray for the missionaries and their work accordingly? Well, pray that new believers would be so touched by the gospel that they would be zealous about sharing the gospel with people around them, regardless of the difficulty, regardless of any social pressure. A third principle, teaching should start with the basics in a simple way. Teaching in the mission field, should start with the basics in a simple way. So in the mission field, most believers know little about the content of the Bible and the terms of theology, let alone unbelievers who were inquiring about Christianity and who almost knew nothing about the Bible. So it would be even more challenging if most people in the mission field cannot read, just as uh, in the day of Dr. Nevius, when the literacy was very low. So commenting on how how a regular sermon would sound like for new believers in the mission field, Dr. Nevius wrote this, quote, A carefully prepared sermon from a trained native preacher or a foreign missionary, such a sermon as would be admirably suited to an intelligent, educated Christian congregation, is out of place in a new station, which refers to a new church planting. So why is that? Why is it such a solid sermon would be out of place in a mission field? Well, he goes on to explain... Quote, "to the great body of hearers who most need instruction a sermon would be like listening to utterances in an unknown tongue or language" End quote. in other words a sermon however sound in exegesis however rich in theology if it is not if it is not accommodating to the capacity of the hearers, then it might be of very little benefit to the audience in the mission field because they understand so little. Dr. Nevius pointed out a danger for people in the mission field to hear sermons which they cannot quite understand. Quote, This kind of preaching gives rise to the church from its very infancy. To a kind of formalism, which is almost fatal to the growth of the progress. They have a service and go home with their consciences satisfied, but their minds not enlightened. In other words, when people go to the church and listen to a sermon that they cannot understand much, they might mistakenly think that, well, I have checked my box, I have done my job while they have not yet grasped the meaning and application of the Word of God. Therefore, in the mission field, where most people are unfamiliar with the Bible, generally, preaching and teaching have to be simpler than places where most people have been well taught for years and even decades. And notice that being simple does not mean being shallow the missionary should still preach the same gospel and teach the same counsel of God while doing it more slowly and more concisely. In Dr. Nivea's day, when very few people were educated intellectually and biblically, a heavy emphasis was put on memorizing simple Bible stories and parables, drawing practical lessons from the Scripture, and learning simple catechism questions and answers, and also the forms of prayers. It is like using your children's Sunday school curriculum for adults in the mission field. Many church members at that time would even travel a long way across mountains just to attend Bible classes for their equipment. And they did so not only for them to, to gain the basic knowledge of the Bible, but they did so also for them to be able to teach others what they have learned. And they did so without being paid. Simple basics do matter a lot in the mission field. To use the illustration of milk milk and solid food in Hebrews 5.12. Although believers cannot always drink milk only and not grow to eat solid food. Nevertheless, they must start with milk so that they can grow enough to chew and swallow and to digest solid food. As one of my former seminary professors once said in a class of Reformed pastor, he said that to care for God's people, the pastor must start from where they are and not from where they should be. Only when we start with where people are right now can we expect them to grow into where they should be. This is true for any church, but particularly true in the mission field, where the majority of people are still in need of milk. That is the basic instruction of the Bible. So how do you pray for the mission work accordingly? Well, pray for missionaries that they would have the wisdom and patience to discern the needs of the people there. And to preach and teach in such a way that they can understand and therefore be fed well. A fourth principle, leaders should emerge from the people while not too hastily. According to Dr. Nevius, elders should be ordained as soon as possible But at the same time, only qualified men should be ordained to be elders. In fact, he emphasized that to elect unqualified men to be elders is acting contrary to the scripture. So, biblically speaking, there is the command to appoint elders in every city. There is in every church. As we are told in Titus chapter 1, with its own elders, the church can be self-governing. But there's also the command in the Bible not to ordain elders too hastily without sufficient examination. As we are told in 1 Timothy 5.22, Do not lay hands on anyone, referring to elders, too hastily. So there must be a reasonable period of training and testing before a man is proven to be qualified and called into the ministry of elders. It's better to have no elders than to have unqualified men to be elders. When Dr. Nevius wrote this book almost 130 years ago, it is not uncommon for a mission church to exist without elders for many years, seven, eight, even ten, more than ten years without elders. However, this does not mean that they would just sit and wait for God to to miraculously throw them some qualified men from heaven. No, rather, these mission churches were always intentionally preparing their own men to be future leaders. Missionaries at that time would discern which men might have the gifts of ruling and teaching and appoint them to be leaders at the church while with only advisory authority. And the goal is to instruct and train this man to be able to manage the business of the church and to eventually care for the church. And this man will trained and tested by actually serving at the church. Here, Dr. Nevius pointed out a practical advantage of ordaining ruling elders at the church. In the mission field, it usually takes much time before the church is able to afford and call a pastor, or what we would call teach an elder in the PCA. Why is that? Well, it's because the church has to grow enough to be able to afford the salary of a pastor. It's also because it takes more time and resources to train men to be pastors. And the question is, how then the missionary care for the mission churches, especially when there are so many mission churches without pastors? The answer is, let men serve in the church and through their service, train them to be future elders. With qualified men serving as elders at the church, even when the church is not yet able to call a full-time pastor, the church can still be taken care of significantly by their elders. Now, notice that this is not saying that pastors are not important or not necessary. Well, they are important and they are necessary. I love my brother Brendan as a pastor here. Um, The work of the pastors is so important for the church, so much so that they should be paid by the church so that they can devote their time and energy fully to the prayer and the ministry of the word, as we are told in 1 Timothy 5, 17. But here the point is that even when the church is still so young and so small and is not able to call a pastor for now, God can still use multiple elders to take care of the to take care of and grow the mission church. Remember, although ruling elders ordinarily do not preach, nevertheless, ruling elders are also called and gifted to teach, to extort, and to shepherd God's people, no less than the pastors or teaching elders, as we are told in First Timothy 3 and Acts 20. How do you pray for the mission work accordingly? You should pray that God will raise up qualified men in the mission churches to be their future elders. And these men will see their callings not as CEOs, but as under shepherds for the church of Christ. Pray as well that missionaries will be very intentional to train their men, to disciple them to be qualified men for eldership. A fifth principle in the mission theory, is that church discipline, church discipline is necessary for the healthy growth of the mission church. According to Dr. Nevius, the administration of church discipline is indispensable to the growth and prosperity of the mission work. Biblically speaking, as we see in Matthew 16, and summarized in our Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 30, sections 1 and 2. Christ Jesus has appointed the the government of the church into the hands of elders. And to this very end, Jesus Christ has also given the keys of the kingdom to these elders to open the kingdom to those who repent and believe in Jesus. That is to preach the gospel and to receive members. But also, these elders are given the keys of the kingdom, the authority to shut the kingdom against those who don't repent. That is to exercise church discipline, to admonish, to suspend them from the Lord's Supper, and even eventually to excommunicate them. The purpose of church discipline is always for good, is to restore sinners and to protect the purity of the church and to vindicate the honor of Jesus. Historically, you might remember, church discipline was even viewed as one of the three marks of true church. The preaching of the gospel, the right administration of the sacraments, and the church discipline. Church discipline is absolutely necessary for the health and growth of the church, both for an established church, but also for the mission church, because church discipline removes unrepentant sinners from the church who would have caused harm to the church. And church discipline also warns believers against the danger of sin and urges them to take their faith seriously. So as you see in Acts chapter 4, chapter 5, we see the first case of church discipline in the New Testament church, which was just a young mission church as they were. So you remember Ananias and Sapphira, they lied to the Holy Spirit about the price at which they sold their property. So they were struck by God to death. And then, as you, as you read the following verses, you will notice that the result was, after this church discipline, the result was, as we are told in Acts 5.14, and all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women were constantly added to their number. You see that church discipline, when properly done, promotes the growth of the church. As Dr. Nevius recalled in the mission church, in the mission field, quote, those places where there have been most excommunications are really stronger. And more promising than when they had more names on the roll. End quote. In Dr. Nevia's experience, most of those who ended up being excommunicated from the church, they did not commit scandalous offenses such as adultery, but rather most of them were gradually drifting away, gradually neglecting Christian duties and the means of grace and eventually totally abandoning the church. So you just imagine, in a young mission church, when many people have their names on the roll, and they don't come to the church at all, while they are still being called and treated as believers, what would happen to them? What would happen to those who do attend the church? Well, they might think that they are saved. Regardless of whether they go to the church or not, they would think mistakenly they are saved, regardless of whether they listen to the word of God or not. Without church discipline, such backsliding would be justified and plague the whole church like leaven and hinder the growth of the mission church. Dr. Nevius said, quote, I believe the neglect of church discipline would soon result in checking the growth and perhaps extinguishing the life of the church. Church discipline, therefore, as a serious, as serious and even terrifying as it might sound, and rightly so, it is necessary for the being and the well-being of the church, just as a man with cancer cannot live long unless the cancer is removed by Painful surgery. How do you pray for the mission work accordingly? Well, there is always a temptation for missionaries that they so desire to see the number of people grow that they might avoid church discipline when it is necessary. So pray for missionaries that they would exercise church discipline with courage, love, and wisdom whenever it is necessary for the peace and purity and growth of the mission church. And also pray for church members in the mission field that they would see and appreciate the necessity and importance of church discipline and they would be more watchful against their sins. Our sixth principle in the mission field is that believers should be taught to support their own church and their future pastors financially. So by the time Dr. Nivius wrote this book, he had been serving in China for almost 30 years. And yet, those churches that he started in China had not yet been fully self-supporting. They were still depending on the mission funds from other countries, more or less. And obviously, it takes a certain amount of time for a young mission church to be self-supporting, especially when most of the church members are financially poor, only the Lord can provide for the church. Nonetheless, while waiting on God's provision for the church, Dr. Nevius also kept teaching Christians the duty to give. He said this, quote, in contributions, meaning financial giving. We have not accomplished what we ought, meaning that he has not yet had his church being fully self-supporting. However, he goes on to say, quote, this matter has been constantly kept before the Christians and special books and play cards, booklets. Treating of this subject of tithing have been prepared for them and studied by them, end quote. So the result was that According to Dr. Nevius, although they were not yet able, they were not yet fully self-supporting, yet they were able gradually to build their own church building, to support evangelism in other regions, to assist the poor members in their church, and even to pay mission helpers who otherwise would have been paid by foreign funds. So the point here is that from the get go, from the very beginning, the missionary must teach believers in the mission field to give tithe offerings. No matter how poor they are, no matter how counterculture this teaching might be in a materialistic culture, there can be no self supporting church unless the church members are constantly taught and challenged to give faithfully and even sacrificially. How do you pray for the mission churches accordingly? Pray that young church members would be so committed to the church of Christ that they would give faithfully, generously, and even sacrificially. And also pray for missionaries that they would faithfully instruct the biblical principle of Christian tithe A seventh principle, and finally, is that the key to successful mission work is to use the means faithfully while trusting in the Lord for the result. Use the means faithfully while trusting in the Lord for the result. So far, as you could hear, Dr. Nevius discussed a lot about the method of mission leading to fruitful results. Nevertheless toward the end of his book he came back to the very basic truth about our faithfulness and God's sovereignty in a mission work he said this quote the dominant idea of a missionary should be duty and not immediate individual success as judged by human standards he goes on to say only in eternity will every man's work be fully made manifest of what sort it is. Quote. In other words, it is the missionary's duty to use the means faithfully. Those means of grace as God revealed to us in the Bible. But only God can bring about the fruit. Missionaries of themselves can do nothing except being faithful instruments of God. If there is any food in the mission field, the ultimate cause for the fruit is not the missionary, is not his gift or resources, but the power of the Spirit blessing the faithful use of the means. Dr. Nevius also warns us against the danger of putting our trust in money. The danger is that we might be tempted to think, well, as long as we put enough money into the mission field, and as long as the money is used rightly, then that will automatically work out certain desirable results. Well, if we think that way, then we will only welcome the more favorable and encouraging stories happening in the mission field, and the missionaries might be tempted to only share things that sound good. And the result is, we end up putting our trust in our resources and means rather than the Holy Spirit. Of course, here he's not saying that money is not important, nor is he saying that we shouldn't expect to see food, nor is he saying that we shouldn't give for the mission work. No. Yes, it's important for God's people to give generously for the mission work, and God commands it, and God ordinarily will use our resources to promote the growth of the church in other parts of the world. Yes and yes. But here his point is that missionaries as well as standing churches ought to put their confidence in the trying God to whom alone salvation belongs. Money, money can buy church buildings. But money can never build up the church. Only Christ can. Money can fly missionaries to preach the gospel in the far ends of the earth. Yes, but money cannot convert those who hear the gospel. Only the Holy Spirit can. How do you pray for the mission churches and missionaries accordingly? Well, pray for unwavering faithfulness, and perseverance for the missionaries so that they would faithfully use all the means of grace, preaching and teaching the whole Bible, shepherding and discipling God's people, evangelizing unbelievers and instructing believers to do the same and training future leaders. Even when they don't see quick result, they will continue to be faithful. Also pray for their confidence and encouragement in the Lord, especially when they are frustrated. Remember, Jesus says, I will build my church, and the gates of hate shall not overpower it. Let us pray together. Our holy, trying God, the Lord of the harvest, we thank you that you first save us so that we may adore you and we may be a part of the mission work around the globe. We thank you that you not only commanded us to be engaged in the mission work, but you have also revealed the biblical model of the mission work, which you promised to bless. So we ask that we as supporting church we pray faithfully according to the teaching of Scripture for the mission work and the missionaries. We ask, O oh Lord, you would build up your own church, not only locally, but also globally by the power of the Spirit through the faithful use of the means of grace. May you and them be extorted high even to the ends of the earth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.